Abra. Hello, and welcome to Good Bad Show. My name is Andy. And I'm Matt. This is a podcast where sometimes I throw Matt like a weird curveball of a topic. It's not even like a real topic. This sounds like a show where that's going to be the case. Yeah. Matt, you ever think about time travel? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. When you think about time travel, in, 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 how do you think about time travel? I feel like it's a thing that maybe many of us ruminate on, but I feel like there's lots of ways to think about it. Are you like a, I'm going to go back in time and shoot Hitler out the window type? Or are you like a, what if I could go back five years and invest in Bitcoin type? Like, what, what, is, your, what is your time travel variety? How, how do you think about these things? I feel like usually I think about it in that, like, if time travel does exist, surely I'll see myself soon, right? I'm just going to pop through a portal and be like, don't do that, and then pop right back. I think, there's some, I think there's some paradox or something uh, that somebody has documented, which is basically that states that time travel surely must not exist because at some point someone would have traveled back in time to visit the present and we'd be aware of them yeah. somehow. Like, like even if there was, you know, insane regulations and laws in the future on using time travel, like surely given the infinite span of time, somebody would have screwed up and gone back into the past and, you know, made it obvious. I always like to think about it in the context of the people who aren't aware that time travel exists and they just see like a person pop out and like, what? That guy just killed a German baby. What happened? I mean, mm-hmm. it's me, an Austrian baby. Like, you're like, no, you don't understand. He'll be bad. Like, what? No. But would he be bad? Maybe you could just go back and, like, give him a hug when he was a child. Give him a little affection. Maybe that's all he wanted. that was a bit extreme time traveler guy. You could have just... Told him his paintings were good. Just tell him him he had to draw a nice picture of a cat and not murdered him. It's just a baby. Jesus, time traveler guy. And that's why today's topic is Hitler's watercolor paintings. Oh, yeah. Good. Andy (laughs) loves them. They're really good for a baby. No, he actually is a, a, a accomplished artist. Have you ever seen his paintings? I can't say I have, actually. You should uh, look it up. Uh, it's a thing that people collect for obvious reasons, both because they're art collectors and also it's obviously got a weird historical meaning. Uh, but look up, just like type in Hitler paintings. Okay, I'll do that. You do that, too. And we'll all be on a watch list. Actually, there's no watch list for that anymore. <laughs> what are you talking it's about a, a watch list? It's an approved list. list. Just like friends of the president. Yeah, yeah, you're on the list now. They're good paintings, though. Are That's not really? the actual topic, though. I threw you a curveball, Matt. All right. Another curveball. So wait, it was a curveball on top of the curveball? Another ball? classic mangled curveball. You know, if you curve it both ways, it actually ends up going right down the center of the plate. Yep, that's true. Just like when you play the opposite sound to do the noise reduction, you know? No, I don't know that. You don't know about that? No. Oh, like, you know, you know how sound is just waves? Yeah. You ever think about that? No. Well, sound is just waves, and I think about it a lot. And if you take, you know, a sound wave and invert it and play the inverted sound wave at the same volume simultaneously as the regular sound wave, the waves mm-hmm. just offset, right? It's just like, you know, two waves crashing into each other and they have the exact same, exact opposite force and, uh, you know, energy behind them. And so they just result in no waves. And that's how you can like block out sound. It's how like noise canceling headphones work and stuff. Mm, fun. I didn't know that. It's very unintuitive to think that you can play a noise to make a noise stop. I guess that is unintuitive. I mean, I guess I've used a noise reducer when I edit the podcast and stuff, but is that? Well, I guess is that's that not what that's, that's doing? doing. But uh, if you wear sure like a, that's if you wear like a Bose headphone, that's what it's doing. Yeah, like your, your Bose headphones with the batteries. That's what they're doing. They're just yeah, you know, playing some inverse sound waves. Weird. Weird just stuff, like this Andy. topic, which is a curveball, because Matt, I think it's interesting to talk about time travel in the context of the greater premise of this show, which I don't want to lose track of. 
We're starting to. We're I know. doing our best. I know. We're starting to. I don't want to lose the plot because I think it's an interesting topic. That's why we started mm-hmm. the show. Yep. I, want to, I want to focus on that. So tonight, I want to talk about what it would be like to take various cultural artifacts, various pieces of art across different mediums, and take them back in time to a previous time period and try and imagine what people would think of those pieces of art in that time period. Sure. Is Guernica good in, I don't know, the 1200s? Is that a thing sure. people ask about? Sure, you could do that. My favorite one is like, what if you just took like a modern pop song back to like the Middle Ages? Mm. And let's assume for purposes of conversation that you could somehow produce this pop song without causing insane confusion about where the music was coming from, right? Maybe you can take back a whole band or whatever that plays the song, but you are somehow playing this song for a person and they're not caught up in the magic of how music is coming into their ears. They're just focusing on this song. Do you think a middle-aged person would like a Kanye West song or a, a Taylor Swift song or uh, that song with the Desposito? Would they like it? Is that an actual question? Because I think yeah. no. I think they wouldn't like it. Why don't you think they would like it? Think, I think there's no amount of context you could set that would explain the context for the song. Do you think any like it, of those? It'd be you like, like you'd like explain for like three years and then be like, okay, now you get it. All right, here's the song now. Any, anything short of that, I feel like it'd be like, wait, what? What is this? What is this whole thing? Well, this, who? this gets at an interesting question though, right? Like certainly I would agree that some part of your and my enjoyment of music, and we would hope to assume most humans enjoyment of music uh, mm-hmm. is some understanding of the context in which it was created, usually subconsciously, right? Like, I don't yes. think many of us get, like, deep pleasure from actually, like, imagining, you know, the process behind the music and, you know, all that kind of stuff, even though I do really like process and things like that. And certainly, when it comes to, like, lyrical content, like, there are things I appreciate about, say, rap music because of the sort of content of it. That would be totally lost on somebody from the Middle Ages, right? Like, yeah, you're not going to be able to explain Gucci loafers with any, like... There's no, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way to explain <laughs> Gucci loafers. I mean, I guess actually there is. It's like, you know the shoes the king wears? That's what Gucci loafers are in, you know, 700 years or whatever. Um, okay. But that context is something that's missing. But would you not agree that a huge portion of people's enjoyment of specifically pop music uh, has nothing to do with that? For example, Desposito is the n- number one song of the summer. I just saw yesterday it was the most streamed song of all time. Uh, yeah. And in the United States, most people don't speak Spanish, so we don't even speak the language that the chorus is being sung in, and it is still one of the most popular songs of the summer, because I think there's something like, uh, almost like reptile brain about uh, certain types of media, and pop music is one of them, where you're like tapping into something that's just like fundamental, like humans like a beat, humans like, you know, a certain kind of melody, and like a contrast between sounds and textures, and You know, if you just kind of do something like that, it's like candy, right? Like, if you took a candy bar back to the Middle Ages, I think we can agree someone would really like a Snickers, right? Well, I don't necessarily know. They might be like, oh, this is too sweet. I don't have nearly this much sugar in my life. Uh, I also think, I I would be willing to bet, like, uh, a song, like like a Despacito example, that might have an age range associated with it more than, like, a language associated with it. Like, if you, just the phenomenon of, like, playing a song for your grandparents and then being like, I don't get this. You're like, oh, we can't even go back in time two generations and have this work. So why can we go back 200 years and have this work? Like, well, don't you think there might be some sort of like 
cultural zeitgeist thing happening and the language is not really a part of it. Well, so I don't want to confuse uh, the calcifying of people's brain patterns and waves and tastes with age with okay. the idea that something can't exist outside of a context that it was created in. Because, for example, lots of people end up attaching to music from 40 years prior to when they were born. It's not necessarily the music that you were born with or the music you're going to love. Uh, it's just that it's the music that you heard at this formative time in your life when you were kind of calcifying your own little brain patterns uh, to determine what your taste was going to be. So I, I definitely concede that my anecdotal experience and from talking to other people, it does seem like as you get older, generally you're less open to like a totally new shocking sound or taste uh, or like visual art, mostly because you just aren't, you don't have it in your brain anymore to like process new information and like really think about it in a, in a big way. Um, yeah. And I, I'm not just throwing old people under the bus. I feel this happening to myself. <laughs> like, like I definitely, there's a certain type of rap music that I really like. And uh, it is not the rap music that is popular right now. It's rap yeah. music that was popular, you know, five to 12 years ago and i do kind of feel myself like stuck in that like i go back to those albums repeatedly uh if you play an album from that era or somebody will like you know do a callback where they're making a song that's supposed to be kind of like that era and i can hear it and i I respond to that more than you know whatever's going on now so back in my day they didn't rap in triplets says andy mangold exactly he's always saying stuff like that what happened to the rhymes now it's all just mumbling anyway what's a quavo huh what is a quavo (laughs) Uh, sure, Andy. I, I, I see what you're saying. Like, obviously, that's not necessarily about, um, you know, when you were born. It's about your age and the kind of you, you maybe being super into the music of your teens and 20s and not necessarily into music that came around when you're 30 to 40, 50, 60, whatever. Well, but again, that changes. the distinction but, I want to make is that... But we're saying, like... Well, so oh, the, the distinction I want to make is not that it was the music that was necessarily made when you were in your late teens and early 20s. It's whatever you were listening to for whatever reason, right? So when we go back to the Middle right. Ages, Matt, I want to find the 17-year-olds and the 22-year-olds and play them Despacito. I don't have any, I don't have any misgivings about the fact that a 45-year-old or 50-year-old in uh, feudal Europe is going to really respond to it. But uh, I do think that people who are in that point in their life where they are forming their taste will be more receptive to it. And honestly, I think... I, I, I disagree with you. I think you take Despacito back. I think it would be, if anything like way more popular because we've spent 200 years like perfecting the pop song it's like this it's this like formula uh it would be the equivalent of like i said like taking like you know a big mac back to the middle ages when someone's eating like unsalted mutton and you hand them a big (laughs) mac and it's like the result of all of our like scientific and uh culinary work to make make this affordable and very tasty food uh i think people are gonna love it frankly uh which is the thing that that's part of that's obviously informed by or informs my kind of perception that there is some kind of uh like shared thing about being human that is not explicitly limited to cultural context or you know place in time necessarily right i think I think I could get on board with that that like I think there would be the initial shock even if you brought it to a seventeen year old whether it be a big Mac or a Kanye song. But I think if you give him enough time with it, I think that could work. But then I'm mm-hmm. kind of like, the burger I get, like the music, but would that work with just anything? Like if you gave him enough time with it and you like ingrained it in their culture. You mean a bad thing? Could like, you? Like, yeah. Like, could you like, just like let's take the room back to, uh, to like late 19th century pre-film and will people think the room is the greatest movie ever? 
like there's also part of it that I can't get over, which would just be like the novelty of a different thing, right? Like am- amongst the context of everything else they have, look at this burger. This is amazing. Well, I mean, how do you even bring a movie back, right? Yeah, like, and that gets to the issue of like, like if you did the movie as a play, if you did the room as a play, would it be the best play? Mm, yeah. Or you have not. to like somehow convince people that it was, you know, <laughs> that they're watching an actual place of not totally having their minds blown by the idea that things oh, are people live in, in this tiny box. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> yes, and these rapid changes and cuts are just uh people moving very quickly. <laughs> That's all it is. Um you could actually uh, see I'm I'm getting weird ideas. You could have a like a theater where you had different stages set up. Uh, stages and all the stages movie screens and every time there's a cut in the movie you move to the next screen quote unquote the next like stage uh, yeah. to try and convince people that you know it's just actors and don't worry sure. about like you know cameras being really close in and you know zoom and stuff like that that's too complicated but um well, that's what the that's when the tiny people just move closer to the screen duh obviously but yeah so there's a part of that right like i do think if you took back let's not even like talk about a like hysterically you know uh like a stereotypically a bad movie like the room just talk about like a a bad movie like just a movie that wasn't popular no one really liked it it wasn't like so bad it's good it's just like a you know kind of flop um yeah none of these come to my mind because they are inherently forgettable that's the whole point of it. but you take you take one of the star wars prequels back right sure. uh i do agree that i think if you take a star wars prequel back to you know the era let's just say of uh, when the wizard of oz came out which i believe was the late 20s uh yeah i think people are gonna think that's the greatest movie of all time because it is probably right (laughs) like uh even a a bad thing now in an art form that we have collectively culturally invested a lot of time and energy into trying to do a good job at is a really good version of that old thing um yeah so so yeah there is some sense of it that it's just kind of like novelty to a degree uh but but yeah I, i don't think that to me that doesn't like change the like takeaway which is that, like, I think when we watch, for example, a, a bad movie, uh, I think the only reason that we're able to, like, you know, say that it's a bad thing and that it's not worth our time and we're going to, like, you know, judge it as such is because we have so many other better things to fill our time with, right? It's just, it's weird, like, time loss evaluation where you're like, I could have been watching a good movie or I could have been playing this video game that I love or reading this great book that I'm in the middle of, but instead I was watching some people sit in some Senate in space and talk about legislation or whatever the prequels are about. Uh, And so that's the reason why I think it's judged as harshly as it is, when in reality, is it actually bad in the grand scheme of things? Maybe not. It's just that we're comparing it to other better art. Uh, And to me, yeah, I don't know. I'm blabbering. I I mean I agree with that part that we're we're j- kind of just comparing everything to better art like uh actually there's a documentary called oh, what was it called Exporting Raymond I think that's what it was it was about Oh no you think everybody who, loves Raymond that's the name of it Yeah you're you're so there's a, it was a documentary about the one of the creators of that show not Raymond but the other guy taking it to Russia and it was just like this very like it's kind of funny cuz you're like watching somebody like explain not that they don't have sitcom as like a medium or as a genre or whatever um, but like they don't have that many compared to America, and you just see them like try to explain like American sensibilities to a Russian audience, and it kind like in some ways it works really well because it's like one of the most popular shows over there, but in other ways it doesn't work at all because he's like has to change everything about the show in order for it to work for for a Russian audience, and so part of me just wonders like, do you, like any time you introduce something new, like we have to explain this new medium, we have to explain this new genre, we have to explain this new format. And like you, you kind of work your way through levels of that. I don't know what that means, actually. 
way like yeah well first of all that documentary like do we have levels of do we have levels of genre of music or do we just get bored with the previous thing and so the good thing is just the thing we're not bored with you know what i mean like it's not like i don't i don't know if that we're advancing are we advancing or are we just like bored and moving on well so next thing this is novel now well so this is the this is kind of what i like want the show to be right i want to dissect this stuff so first of all the documentary sounds very up my alley i'm gonna go seek it out and watch it because i'm interested in what they have to say about that process of bringing because I, I do think there's like a lot of meaningful parallels like the closest we can get to take something back in time is taking something to a different completely different culture in which it's nothing like that exists and just showing it to people right yeah. uh which part of the reason i feel the way i do about taking pop music back in time is because we do have some evidence of like you know the cargo cults where uh you know in various wars soldiers left behind a bunch of like records uh of like rock music and like you know islands in the pacific where uh, you know, they didn't have radios and hadn't ever heard of the music before, and then they come back, you know, years later, and these people have like raised this music up to this like level of a god, and they don't understand the technologies being used to produce it. And now they're using their traditional, uh, you know, musical instruments and techniques to try and reproduce music of a similar genre. Like they they attach to it, even though it is completely divorced from their cultural context, which is the closest mm-hmm. we can get to taking something back in time. But what you're getting at is very interesting to me because. I feel like one of the most important things to me when I'm creating something is being able to identify which decisions fall into which buckets with regards to like making big, sweeping, like like valuable, timeless artistic decisions versus like understanding that certain things just have to appeal to the time, right? right. Uh, so, so yes, for example, you know, let's take Everybody Loves Raymond, <laughs> which I don't think is a particularly <laughs> good TV show, but I did watch well, a lot of when I was a kid. I because... will say, I do think it is a particularly good example of a sitcom. Like, I'm not a huge fan of, like, the traditional multicam sitcom, but for what that is, I think Raymond is a pretty good example of that, right? Yeah, like, I, I haven't watched enough of it to genre, know, but it seems to me like kind of like the, the paradigm, right? This is the model like, of I what a sitcom don't, is. Like, I would never watch that show now. I watched a lot of it as a kid. Same here. My family but, watched it. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a good version of that, I think. Tabra. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so taking that show for example, uh, if that show was set on Mars, right, uh, or set in like m- more so down that like road, a totally abstract setting that didn't resemble a home as you know, Middle America knows it, uh, you wouldn't be able to communicate all the things about the family dynamics and about the relationships between the people you wanted to communicate most likely, or it'd be a lot harder to because the setting would be so alien, right? So yeah. if, the inter- if the thing they were trying to make the art about was these relationships between these people and what it's like to have a brother that has always felt like they were worse than you and you were the sort of golden child uh, and now you're like adults and how that dynamic has changed in, in the adult life or you know, all those kinds of things. When you're trying to make a show like that, you have to like, I think, be careful about where you put your creative energy to like, make the decisions that matter and the ones that don't recognize that they just kind of have to like fit in this like cookie cutter context that things need to fit into. Um, which frankly, like another example of that, to go back to rap music, um, lots of really good rap music uh, has what basically amounts to like very predictable uh, production or beats, right? Like you, the thing that the rapper is doing is writing an interesting narrative and telling a story uh, and their wordplay and their writing is the sort of the, their art. And so what it's on top of is like, in some cases, just basically the same loop over and over and over again, uh, because the sort of creative energy that person is putting into that work is in that sort of sector and not necessarily in the production sphere. And specifically in the rap world, there's like a clear distinction, like there's producers that make the beats 
uh, and there's rappers that you know do the lyrical work on top, and some people are both. Um, yeah. But it's interesting to me to think about like a lot of them are just kind of shortcutting. They're like, yeah, I'm going to use this this drum sound. I'm going to use this sort of basic time signature. I'm going to use these things because I know these are familiar to people. And what I have to say is not something about that. Uh, it's something about you know whatever story I want to tell that I'm going to tell with my words. Um, and so what you give up by putting some things just in a cultural context. And I, if, if given infinite time and resources, like I think you could sit down and say, here's a story I want to tell. Now let me take this story and apply that perspective to every aspect of this piece I'm working on, right? Every yeah. little detail will be just like totally refined. Uh, and to me, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the, the best art can be, right? When someone has the time to invest in those things and has the skills oftentimes to do it themselves because communicating your vision to somebody else is near impossible uh, in, in most creative uh, industries. You can't actually do it, which is why, you know, auteurs have such a sort of high standing, like the idea that you can do everything yourself or have control over everything creatively uh, is, is something that often gets uh, sort of recognized. Uh, short of being able to do that, though, like that to me is like the artistic paradigm. And when you can't get there, knowing where to kind of make compromises and just say, this is what is, fits in the culture right now, uh, so I'm going to do that. Uh, that's what, to me, is very interesting. And, like, when you compare, like, pop music, quote-unquote, to not pop music, uh, to me, like, the pop music is a thing that largely is just, like, fitting into the context or uh, appealing to, like, the bass senses more uh, than something else that's trying to, like, reach deeper and, like, tell a, a bigger story. Um, so you can shortcut things by either applying them to the context in which you the work you make exists or by uh appealing to like baser senses right like you just put salt in the food and salt tastes good <laughs> and it doesn't matter yeah. what you're trying to say about this oyster or whatever because you just put salt in it and salt's tasty uh or you put fat in it and you know everyone likes fat um and yeah to me like but but these things are how i start how i'm trying to build my mental model of like what is good art right if you had the time to cook a delicious meal and you had to figure out how to make it delicious without using salt, right? We're using very little salt. Uh, that's a huge accomplishment, right? Um, and I've, I've had the like privilege of eating at some really nice restaurants where like that is what they do, right? They're, we're we're going to try and make this vegetable taste as much like this vegetable as possible, and that means not drowning it in salt and not just like roasting it in butter for two hours, but like doing like these much more kind of careful, fiddly things with it uh, to sort of reach this higher form. And to me, like that's worth recognizing and i think it stands outside of the context of of time or outside of the context of culture in some circumstances mm. in some ways that makes sense in some ways it's like competing like so you're saying pop music is pop music relies heavily on like the color, kind of cultural context to blend in right yeah and also like the, it's kind of like saying like hey thing. we're gonna we're gonna kind of assume a lot of things about where we are right now and not say too much so we can kind of blend in and do like just do this one thing and honestly to me i don't think it's about blending in as much as it's about like pop music as a business more than you know being a like artistic singer songwriter trying to express yourself as a business and so you're just trying to make as many pop songs as you can because if you put out an album every single year you're just going to sell more records even if each album is only 80 percent as good as, as the greatest album you could make you know right right i don't know when you're talking about that like when you're talking about that idea i kept thinking about not just the food but almost like a chef putting their food on a white place plate versus like designing their own plate that perfectly fits the form of the food or something where you, it, it is about like uh ultimately like time and money and resources and whatever but i guess you could also say like well that's hugely distracting from the thing itself um 
What, I the, wonder if the, that's, the plate or whatever. Yeah, like the plate itself. Like is the plate like the plate is the beat or whatever it is. Like whatever part of the overall that uh, I don't know. Is that the the actual absolute perfect form, or is that just a distraction from from what what the thing is, which is maybe the lyrics, which is maybe you know, it's not necessarily the whole. It's the it's the one specific thing the artist wants you to focus on. Well, that's the thing, right? That depends on execution. Um, I've yeah. been to restaurants where the food was served on abnormal plates or we served with abnormal utensils and it was a distraction, right? It was like, oh, this is, why has this been, and there's actually a whole Reddit uh, called we want plates, r slash we want plates, <laughs> that is just uh, like bad interpretations of like uh, contemporary like experimental cuisine where like, like things don't put are on served on like dumb stuff. Oh, it's, it's yeah. way worse than you can imagine. Just go check out r we want plates. <laughs> okay. Um, but what they're, what they're doing on all the pictures on R We Want Plates is largely trying to mimic what some extremely high-end restaurants have been able to afford to do, which is, like, really make that a part of your process, right? Like, I think a lot of people that end up serving something on abnormal, you know, flatware or, uh, or plates or, uh, you know, whatever, are doing it because it's, like, a gimmick, right? Like, well, yeah, yeah we bring you this, uh, this oyster, and it's uh, on a... For example, uh, some places serve... They cook and serve, like, steaks on salt. They, like, have a salt stove, and they'll, like, cook a slab of meat on a salt stove. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything I've read about this is that it's not a great way to cook a slab of meat. And that people have this weird idea that if you cook it on salt, it'll be, like, perfectly seasoned. But that's just not how that works. <laughs> and so, uh, like, that's an example of, like, you know, it's a gimmick. It's not actually doing something great. Um, but, like I said, I've been lucky enough to get to go to some really... Very, very, very nice restaurants where, you know, for example, uh, they have like a ceramicist uh, on staff that makes specific uh, sort of plates and bowls and things to the chef's uh, sort of specific directions. Uh, and in those cases, sometimes you don't even know, right? You're just, it just looks like a, it's like a slightly weird plate, but it's not like a drawing attention to itself plate. It just, something about it is perfectly melded with the dish it's, that's being served on top of it. Uh, whether it's like the thickness or the texture of the plate uh, or like how a knife feels kind of running across the surface if it's something you have to cut or, you know, all these little details are things that people that have the privilege, and it is a huge privilege uh, to spend enormous amounts of time and energy and money like making all these small decisions. Like, I, I don't see how we can't see that as like the highest form of, of an art, right? Uh, and it, it's important to recognize that like that comes with privilege, right? You can't just you can't just say everyone go make great art because you can, but like that's where we get this idea of like a starving artist, right? That's somebody that is trying to make the art that normally you can't afford to make, and the way they're doing it is by like you know giving up their own resources, giving up their own time uh, to kind of commit everything to this work because uh, there's no way to do a good job except by giving two hundred percent. And if that means that you you know eat nothing but dried ramen for th- three months, then that's what you're willing to do as a quote unquote starving artist. Um, yeah, right. So, so yeah, I have, and to me, like, I always am thinking about this as a foil to, like, capitalism, right? Uh, everything I'm describing here is something that capitalism rejects, right? Like, why on earth would you hire a ceramicist to make specific bowls just for this dish, which you're only going to serve in the restaurant for, like, four to six months max uh, until you move on to something else because you have to change all the time also because that's how you, you know don't stay stagnant and you kind of continue to do the best work you can do. Um, it's not worth it, right? Like nobody is going to explicitly pay more money for this dish because of that bowl or because of that plate. Um, but it's the sort of, the, the art to me is seeing that if you can afford to do it, being able to do that creates like an experience that is much bigger and more special than each little detail can possibly amount to. 
Um, and like this again comes back to like that alter thing. But uh, there's a uh, there's a restaurant outside of Washington D.C. called the Inn at Little Washington. Um, yeah, and it was kind of like one of the first like farm to table places, uh, like true farm to table places. And now it's like a thing you see at every restaurant in the whole world. Like Applebee's says they're farm to table now, but um, this is a place where like this guy went out into like the countryside and just found a plot of land near a gas station and bought it and built a inn and built a restaurant and built a farm. Uh, and they grow as many of the ingredients as they possibly can right on the premises and talk about being involved in the process. Like the head chef, this, this, you know, restaurateur of this guy that is like overseeing everything at this place it goes into the fields and and like works directly with the farmers and like talks about the things they're growing and tries to find the right like cultivars of these individual vegetables and this guy has had like his hand has touched everything in on this property right like all of the exterior design decisions interior design decisions the clothing that the cook, the cook staff wears the napkins they use the decorations in the restaurant everything is the vision of this one guy because he's had the privilege to be able to do this, right? Um, yeah. For whatever reason, right? He's been able to to sink his entire life into this thing. And the result is like, it's truly like a little world unto itself. Uh, and I think if you take someone from the Middle Ages there, I think if you go there as someone in 2017 or 2018 uh, and experience it, like you can, you can sense that there's something meaningful through all these decisions, even if you don't agree with individual ones, right? Um, it's the overall like thing that comes together. And the perfect example is like, it's a really fancy restaurant you know, very expensive, uh, white, you know, nice high-end stuff. Uh, but one of the things that the, the head chef has decided is that the waitstaff wears, like, leopard print on, uh, pants. Not the waitstaff, I'm sorry, the, um, the cook staff. So, like, the cooks, which you see because they bring things out. Uh, they wear leopard print pants uh, in addition to their, like, normal chef's, you know, white or black tops. Uh, which is just a weird thing and like in isolation you're like this is just totally strange it makes no sense i would never have chosen that but when you see that in the context of this whole restaurant uh the whole thing makes sense now they also as, as a sharp contrast to that they play this like uh deep like roman catholic like monk gregorian chants in the kitchen 24 7 so whenever the kitchen is, go- is going like they're it's dead silent because it's a high-end kitchen so everyone is you know, knows exactly what they're doing and is communicating only as much as they need to. And over top of all of it is a Gregorian, like, background chant being played while everyone's wearing leopard print pants. Like, yeah. And I'm describing this and it might sound like totally trashy and weird, but if you go, like, everything just works, uh, which to me is the result of somebody having the luxury and the privilege to make all the creative decisions about a whole experience and not just think about themselves as, like, I'm making a slab of steak for someone to eat but think about themselves as somebody that is like delivering an entire experience, which every creative person should have the luxury of doing, right? I, I would love for every person that makes an album to get to say how it's packaged and say how it's distributed and, you know, try and <laughs> figure out how people are going to listen to it in their own homes and like change it based on that context. Um, it's just a thing that depending on the art piece, you have less and less control over. And it's a thing that pop music and popular culture is less interested in doing because they're just trying to make as much money as possible, right? Uh, if you're McDonald's, you don't do any of that because you just want to sell as many burgers as possible at the highest margin you can afford. Well, the thing, the thing now I'm, I'm feeling more like is that not so much that the pop song is going to survive this time travel, but more that this, uh, I don't know how you describe it. Like this, this piece of art or whatever, this restaurant that is like so controlled by a vision, whether it be weird or not. Like, I feel like that survives a little bit better because no matter where you're coming from, you can come at it right now and walk into this restaurant and be like, well, this is kind of weird but then you kind of pick up on all these decisions that were made and maybe you can come out of another time and do that too. 
But yeah. like, it's not, that's not relying on the context of the things around it. It's relying on this, this either great or strange or singular vision, right? Exactly. Like, I feel like that, exactly. Like that survives better than the, uh, than just bringing a, bringing a Big Mac. Oh, for sure. Because you're setting the context, right? No. You're like, you're dropping someone else into the context as opposed to like dropping into their context and just being like, here's a Britney Spears song or whatever. No, I agree completely. And, uh, and, and my, my question about the pop song or about the Big Mac was to kind of set a baseline because I feel like if, if that survives the trip back in time, if we, if we feel like people would connect with that, then surely something that somebody has invested way more creative energy in and had more control over more aspects of it and given less up just to the sort of basic context of whatever time it was created in or just to blend in with whatever or shortcut things to sort of get it out quicker, um, surely the thing that has more time invested in it would, would, re- would re- sort of uh, connect with people even more deeply. Um, yeah. Although there, does, there is like a, a question of investment there, right? Uh, both in terms of like time and other things. Uh, if you were to, you know, drive by the Inner Little Washington or like be on a little like, you know, train car going through the restaurant really quickly and like have some food like thrown in your mouth, uh, <laughs> you know, you, it wouldn't have the same experience as like you have to go on a long drive through the hills out there and you like walk through the, the farm and you wait in the room and then like the way the meal is delivered to is very stretched out. It's an investment of like, you know, four hours if you're coming from Baltimore or DC to do it. Um, whereas a pop song doesn't have that. Pop song has to grab you in. 10 seconds otherwise you're going to change the station uh and so part of the reason i think a pop song works so well in this hypothetical time travel situation is that it's designed specifically to like make you not walk away in 10 seconds uh same with a big mac you have to love it from the very first bite and there has to be no question about it uh whereas i think some of the things that naturally are going to have deeper meaning to people uh are going to require a greater investment which we talked about before i i I still feel that way yeah yeah i think uh we're somewhere we're we're somewhere in agreement on that. Next time travel question. This is one this is one of my favorite ones to think about. So you went to art school, Matt. So I know you know about like the advent of impressionism and kind of how that came about. But for listeners that maybe don't understand the history of painting and fine art, um, you know, basically up until the turn of the twentieth century, uh painting more or less was like either something that was done as a means of like religious expression uh, as a means of like paying homage to a god you craft a sculpture or you paint a painting or you make a stained glass window of something to you know pay homage to your god uh or it was like a a craft in the sense of like we're gonna paint the best possible portrait of the king we can or we're gonna paint uh we're gonna we're gonna try to sort of perfect our craft by just taking a bunch of apples on a table and trying to make this paint, this canvas look as much like a photo of those apples as possible. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, it's kind of like it's almost like record keeping because you don't have right, you don't have a camera. Right. So where what's our history? This is our history. Precisely. What did this you know queen look like? If we don't paint her now, we'll never know in twenty years. So uh, exactly, it, it held this sort of practical purpose, um, and it was our only means of capturing any kind of visual aspect of history, and so it, it played sort of an important practical role. Then along comes the camera, right? Uh, which pretty quickly goes from like weird pinhole cameras where you can get like strange shadows of like a building in the Flatiron District to like actual photorealistic photos that people all of a sudden are, you know, blown away by. And you know, it's a difference of like uh, of scale, but I've, the acceleration of photography and like how quickly that technology became relatively affordable and accessible is like similar to thinking about how the internet went from like a thing that the military used to like occasionally send emails or a thing that like 
higher education colleges use to occasionally like make notes about things to like the thing everybody had almost overnight in the grand scheme of time. Now, photography had a similar yeah. like very quick effect on on sort of the culture um, and how we sort of perceive visuals. And so all of a sudden painting was like, well, <laughs> crap, <laughs> you know, this is like basically our whole job for a super long time. We've been <laughs> able to do this. And now there's just this little box with a piece of glass on the front that does it a billion times better than a human ever could, right? It's just, it's actually capturing the photons where we were trying to translate those photons into our eyes, into our brains, through our bodies and nervous system and out through our hands and, you know, brushes onto a canvas. Um, so painting, like, that is where we have the birth of, like, impressionism in all of modern art because painting all of a sudden couldn't be what painting was before. You couldn't just paint the most realistic version of something you could ever hope to paint because photos already did that. There was no longer anywhere near as much of an impetus to do that as there was prior to photography existing. So impressionism is just basically the idea that uh, painting the impression of something as opposed to like literally the exact thing that it is, as opposed to what a camera captures, uh, can be like more meaningful, right? Uh, and that takes all kinds of different forms. And, you know, we can explain that for a long time. But uh, suffice it to say, like, I always like to think about what would happen if you took, you know, visual art from various eras right because as soon as we hit impressionism art the art world exploded right like the modern art world is a billion times more interesting to study than the nine thousand years prior uh in a lot of ways just because things started moving incredibly quickly and like the numbers mm -hmm. of creative uh revelations technological revelations just were so so fast um that if you imagine taking you know like an early impressionist thing like a monet uh or you imagine taking like an action painter painting like, uh, you know, a Jackson Pollock uh, or one of these kind of things back in time and just trying to imagine what people would think and feel about them. Uh, that's something that's always interesting to me. So let's start with a Monet, Matt. Let's take a Monet back to significantly pre-photography, pre-even the idea that maybe a camera will exist someday. How do you think it would be perceived? I feel like that has a level of understandability, like it's slightly more abstract, but... I still think it would be perceived uh, similarly to other art. Obviously, it's not photorealistic, but like you get the sense of what is being depicted, right? As opposed to like a Jackson Pollock, where what what is this supposed to be? Um, I feel like there's some context setting required, but I think it could be, still be accepted. Okay, uh, I, I like, agree. I mean, how do, what do you like? What do you think? I, so, I mean, I don't think it's such. I don't think obviously it has a place in history, and this has essentially happened, right? Like, Monet created a painting and had a reception. Obviously, it wasn't, like, immediately accepted as the greatest, but with time, right? Sure. And there's all kinds of examples of, you know, some painter showing up to the, you know, I can't remember, what was the word for all the... They had big shows every year in, like, the same galleries and stuff in, like, Paris. I can't remember what it was called. Annual something, whatever. There's all kinds of examples of, of painters showing up with paintings uh, to the grand exhibition and people like laughing at them and saying like you didn't even make a painting what is this garbage and you right. know with the benefit of time we recognize that as like a truly important piece historically and a, a big step forward uh, or let's not even editorialize that much a step in a meaningful direction that we continued down further uh, as, as history progressed but no I, I agree I think if you take these paintings back uh, I think they would be appreciated largely uh, by people um, because, and again, we have this whole problem of like, how do you show it to somebody and have them understand that it's paint on a canvas when nothing that ever was a painting prior resembles this at all. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, the things that he was capturing are 
like universal, right? And 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 what's beautiful about impressionism is that I think painters and artists started to recognize that the goal is not to capture the photons literally as they sort of entered your eyeball. The goal is to capture like the feeling of a place and time. Uh, and if right. that means that you're taking liberties, that's okay because being more faithful to the like feeling you're trying to evoke or the setting you're trying to sort of display is better than actually like getting every little, you know, photon correct. Uh, which to me, I think that a technological evolution of the camera precipitated like a thought technology that people otherwise couldn't have made that leap. Uh, and once they made that leap, the thing was just better. It's not that like, you know, the other paintings would be great, except we have the camera now. So now those paintings are replaced. So now we have to do something different. And so we're forced to like, go make something different. And it's only valuable because it's different. I think it's actually just better. It's better paintings. It's more interesting art. And that just happened to be precipitated by this technological change. And so I don't yeah. think in the grand scheme of things, if you take these works back in time, people would be like, what is this garbage? This is clearly painted by a child. Where's this woman's face? This building has no definition. You know, these lily pads look like splotches of paint. I don't, I don't think you're going to get that because I think that the, the step forward was meaningful and objective. Like, I, I think it is better art. Uh, and, and uh, You're saying that the, the technological advancement doesn't, it's not required for this art to be appreciated. Like, exactly. it happened to be the case, but not required. I mean, I, I can also see it as like, uh, there are many other art forms where this basic kind of idea has happened. And it didn't. Rec it wasn't like technologically pushed forward. I mean, even just the idea of like a play versus regular life. Like it's either exaggerated, abstract, uh, you know, condensed. Like something. Like it's not just like mimicking exactly what happened in real life. It's a staged version of it. You know. Um, well, we can that, talk about Joe Swanberg's early movies because uh, <laughs> that's just real life. That's just like regular. That's just real, real life. life. Mumble, 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 mumble. Yeah, sure. But yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, and so that to me is like, I am so interested in the fact that people, artists, specifically painters, could not think to do that, could not think to paint the idea of the tree instead of the tree until confronted with the reality of, hey, guess what? Trying to paint that tree is basically useless now because we have a camera to perfectly capture that tree. Well, uh, I mean, let's be fair. Like, it's not like no one ever thought to do it. It just didn't catch on and become popular. Like, I, I can't. Do Do you think that? I, I do think that. I don't think that. I can't imagine that that thought didn't occur to anyone, or that no one ever tried some sort of like abstract painting. Like, so I mean, I can't think of examples, and obviously, maybe we're not going to come up with them because they didn't become popular, and then we didn't write about them. Um, but I I don't think it's like oh, well, here's the first example of this ever to be tried. We're talking about, here's the version that caught on and became popular and everyone agreed upon it. So there is, I mean, there is that um, in that, like, the first time it happened, we're kind of, uh, we're witnessing the exact thing we were describing of going back in time and introducing a thing. Um, but, like, I feel like the thing that is required is, like, the, the, like, context setting and, like, almost forcing someone's hand being, like, hey, I'm holding a painting that is art, that is good. How do you feel about it? Like, I think initial reaction is going to be bad, but um, give it time. But that's, but we're kind of forcing time on it, right? We're, we're like stepping out of a time machine, holding it from someone's face and like making them confront it. I don't know if I agree, Matt. Um, no? Do you know the history of the high jump in the Olympics? Uh, I don't, but I'm assuming, is it similar to like, you know, the, uh, what was the, uh, the minute mile or whatever? That's not even close to right. 
but you know where you know someone is able to run a certain speed and then everyone after that is able to run that speed because they saw it was possible is that kind of thing better than that so uh so the high jump has been an olympic event i think pretty much since the olympics existed i don't know check wikipedia people don't trust me uh but like the idea of how high can a human jump is a uh, a pretty i'm sure a pretty like base instinct when you're like first testing athletic prowess in all kinds of uh, cultures like how high can you jump seems like one of the obvious things along with how fast can you run or whatever uh and the high jump uh as you and i know it today right you have somebody that runs up uh they approach this bar at the last minute they kind of turn and throw themselves backwards over the bar right right so this technique uh which is called the fosbury flop was invented and uh you know first shown by this one guy named dick fosbury in the 1968 olympics uh, and prior to that, nobody ever thought to jump over the bar backwards. It had never occurred to anybody. <laughs> they just didn't think to do it. Uh, and this guy was like, you know what? I feel like I could go higher if I went backwards. And it turns out that, yes, you definitely can go higher if you go backwards. And basically every high jumper today uses this technique. And to me, like, I know it's, I'm, I'm playing like the game that I hate the most, which is like the, the cherry picking from history, like Malcolm Gladwell turns out game. But uh, to me, to me, it feels like real evidence that so many things seem obvious in hindsight and when in actuality it was not at all obvious right like i i would be we'll never know obviously right uh or i guess we could have be disproven but it seems like we'll never have real evidence that like a bunch of people thought about abstract painting and thought it'd be cool and tried it but then gave up uh i don't think people ever thought to paint the idea of the tree right and like that's what kids do like kids don't paint the idea of a tree if you look at let a kid learn how to draw they all draw like, well, I'll draw the trunk first, and then I'll draw each little leaf, and I'll do this and that. And it's only when you get to get some professional art education that you're taught like, no, no, wait, you're actually painting the light, and the light forms this shape. And it doesn't matter if it's made up of lots of leaves, and it doesn't matter that part of it's sky, and part of it is branch, and part of it is leaf. All that matters is that you capture this light, uh, and that's you learning the thing that all of painting learned in, you know, at the turn of the century. Uh, I, I, I truly feel that way. I feel like it's a thought technology that mm. before it existed, people didn't think about uh, the same way that no one ever thought to go backwards over the stupid pole until Dick Fosbury came along and just threw himself backwards over it, uh, <laughs> yeah. which I don't know. I think about that a lot uh, because I, I feel like there are a lot of things like that, that until you change the way you're thinking about it, you know, there's all kinds of like untapped potential in a lot of different ways, whether it's jumping really high or making good paintings. Um, but like, that's the kind of I like to believe that true like innovation in that sense is possible that that is possible for a person in the modern era to like change the way people think about things in a meaningful way that just like all of a sudden unlocks a whole new a whole new world so don't you dare yeah. close your eyes Matt yeah I guess so I guess it, it, there's there's part I mean there's part of that and then there's part of just like um accepting that that is better because like in the high jump scenario uh, there's a clear, there's a clear uh, better and worse. Like, oh, he jumped higher doing it this way as opposed to the other way. Whereas in the abstract art idea, there's no clear better or worse. The the kind of world has to catch on and be like, oh, it is better. Well, yeah, you you can't measure it. You, know you can't I mean? measure it with a ruler. It's not such an aha moment. Where well, you're see, like, I would argue it is an aha moment. That's the thing. I think it is that. It's obviously not like you know, the moment you get the tape measure out and measure the bar and go, wow, Dick really did jump higher. Uh, like, like that to me is like. You know, you can condense that down to like a few seconds, but you know, yeah. I think in a similar way, the, the aha moment for you know impressionism might have been five years uh, or something instead of like a literal moment in time. Uh, but but I feel like it was a similar thing, right? Like for 
for all of recorded history, like art was representative. It was non-abstract. It was trying to, you know, express the thing as accurately as possible, pretty much. And, you know, I know there's lots of things people talk about that, you know, are the precursors yeah. of all this stuff. But, you know, it wasn't a cultural thing until this sort of change in thought happened. And I do think it was basically relatively immediate. Like, it, it's, all of a sudden it was like, poof, now we have a whole swath of Impressionist painters where yeah. four years ago there were literally none, and now this is a whole thing people can, can be. Um, and I do think it's because it's better. It's better art, right? Like, and I, I resent a little bit that you can so easily measure Dick Fosbury's high jump, but you can't measure or quantify the, the sort of value of art in the same way. Yeah. Because it makes conversations like it's hard to have because somebody can just say, well, what if I say I really like this? weird painting of the queen where her face is squished and doesn't have proper perspective or like a sense of volume of the body uh because it just i like it more it's like okay well great you're allowed to like jumping over the you know pull straight forward too without going backwards but it doesn't make it a better jump nor does it make it a better art well i guess there's other things like here I'll, I'll use a different example that i think is maybe even harder to explain um well i don't think it's hard to explain but it just it gets to something um, you've, you've heard the story of that, like high school coach who never punts, always goes for it on fourth down, you know, always onside kicks and whatever. No, story? <laughs> you and I have very different, very different worlds that we travel. Oh, I've okay. never heard of this. So anyway, there is a, there's a high school football coach and his whole deal is he never punts and he always goes for an onside kick because statistically he's correct that he's going to have more chances of winning the game if he does that. And turns out he's right. Like, he's not making up that math. Is he, he playing, is like, high-level high school football? Is this, like, you know... Yeah. Is this a... What's that show? It takes place in Texas? With the... It's not. I mean, I don't think he... I don't know if he's winning... Actually, I think he is winning national championships. I don't know the full story of it. But, yes, let's say he's playing high-level uh, high school football. This is not some guy who, like, works for some school that is in the middle of nowhere that has a horrible football team, and he's like, let's just try this for fun. No, I think it's relatively successful. Okay. Um, so, yes. So, that is... That's the story. Okay, now you know that. Also, like, this story's been run a million times. You can find it on Deadspin and SI, you know, uh, Sports Illustrated and whatever, ESPN. You'll find a story about it everywhere. I'm sure Malcolm Gladwell put a chapter in his book about him somewhere, right? Um, so we know that. We know that there is a guy who does this coaching thing totally differently, and it's successful, statistically speaking. Um, this isn't caught on. This is not the way the pros work. This is not the way college works. Some people do try it a little bit, right? They might take a risky fourth down uh and go for it even where most people be like that's too risky even though that's just what they didn't talk to think that's not what is statistically true um so we have an example like that where it seems like objectively this thing is better but we're also risk averse we like it the way that things are like how, how do we explain a thing like that where even a thing like that's more measurable than an abstract painting and yet we can't get people on board it makes me think, like, are there, like, these, like, false starts of movements that happen for a long period of time, and then finally, for whatever reason, Monet catches on. Um, like, are we, maybe, in, maybe in 20 years, if football still exists, one coach will try this in the NFL and will be like, ah, he's the one that did it. This is the first time. Things just got better. And you're like, no, that's been, that's happened before. That's happened before. It just didn't catch on. Hmm. Well, I mean, obviously, I have, like, logistical questions, like, is there something about the lesser athleticism of high school students that makes this more possible where you know pros would just do this or more logistically like if everyone agreed this was the best thing to do would then all the defenses and uh kick return things change such that it would no longer be the best thing to do because people are responding to that change in decision but let's take it for 
let's assume hypothetically, because whether or not this is an example of it, I'm sure there are examples of people out there who are doing a thing in a better way, but it is not nobody, having this no kind of like ripple right? effect, right? It's not yeah. not like rippling out there. Whether this is one or not, maybe. Um, I'm sure I'm sure our friend Malcolm would have something to say about the tipping point of this, right? Like, you have to get to 47 high schools doing it, and then tips right over. Actually, um, here, here's another example, a Malcolm Gladwell example, even. It was on his podcast, I think. <sighs> the underhand free throw, right? Statistically, oh, more sure. accurate. I love that one. Perfectly. Then everyone gave up on it. You're like, what happened? So there's another example that I think we could even Malcolm Gladwell about. That one doesn't look cool, though. Yes, that's true. I honestly think that one just comes to that. It comes down, I think it comes down to the fact that it doesn't look cool and that, frankly, it might even be like a basketball players, professional basketball players have a financial interest in being cool because that's how you get <laughs> sponsorships and that's how you sell sneakers and do all kind of stuff. So it yeah. may be like capitalism is really winning out in that sense in that even if it means losing a national championship, you sell more sneakers because you're not the doofus that shoots free throws underhanded or whatever. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think there's a lot of competing interests, right? Uh, and that's what makes all this messy. Uh, if your goal was just to, like, for example, I don't know if the never punting thing is maximizing for scoring the most points a game, winning the most games, uh, winning the most seasons, because, you know, all these little things have, I'm sure, risks and payoffs. And, yeah. for example, maybe, uh, maybe you know, always uh, never punting is the best way to win an individual game right it makes your chances of winning the game go up dramatically uh but over the course of an entire season uh you know the ones you lose you're going to lose by a lot more and you're not gonna have a chance to come back so it's going to make your record worse overall right uh like it's possible that that could be how that works or something um so i think that all these competing things make it difficult uh and that's even more true in like the art example right because more things are subjective and you know what are you actually trying to accomplish and who gets to say what constitutes good um, but there's, I think, rare examples of like the impressionism thing. We're like, yeah, we, this is just better, and like a huge step forward for for the medium. So I don't know. I don't know why that doesn't catch on, uh, other than competing factors. Uh, and I, I honestly, I think in the case of like the NFL or like college football, I think that uh, there's a very good chance that maybe it is just better, and people are not willing to risk their careers on it. Because if you're the coach that does that uh, at you know, Michigan State or whatever the big college is, and then you have a losing season, and guess what? <laughs> you just, you know, spent your entire career on, you know, some gamble you had that this would actually be better. Yeah. And I, I mean, honestly, I think it's very similar to the painting example in that I think you're correct. Like, if I had to take a guess, and I don't even think it's that much of a guess, I think it's pretty obvious. Like, it's a risk, risk aversion thing because it's different and new. And so if you do a different and new thing and it fails, even if you have like numbers on a piece of paper that say, this will do better. Um, obviously, the situation is it's it's kind of high risk, high reward. So you have a better chance of you have more point scoring opportunities, which means you have a better chance of winning the game. So on paper, you should do it. But, you know, if you go for it on fourth down and you succeed, you're a genius. And if you fail, you're an idiot. You know, if you fail, you're an idiot and you're going to get fired. And it's a really high turnover thing. So you don't get a lot of chances um, that in that way, it seems kind of obvious. And I think I think in painting, it could be similar in that, like, I know a thing that does very well. Every time I bring up a, a painting of a person that looks exactly like a person, it does very well. And I, I have this feeling that this, this, the feeling of a person is going to be great. But when, if I bring it and everybody hates me and I don't sell any of my paintings, well, then I'm going to die. This is terrible. What am well, I going to do? Well, so Matt, that's where I think art is different from the rest of the world, kind of fundamentally, because if nothing else, I think artists take risks. I think they are less risk averse than anybody that is making their decisions based on, you know, preservation of self or or capital or whatever 
Uh, and that, to me, is why art is way better than football. Because There you go. I think you're correct about that. I think art is way more risk-averse than, than head coaching positions in the NFL, Andy. Vice versa. Way less risk-averse. <laughs> way more, way more risk-willing risk to take. I said uh, that the opposite way. I meant the other way, Andy. I got it. I got it. I think our listeners did, too. But yeah, um, that's my little time, time travel episode. That's something I think about all the time, is I think about a thing I like, and I'm like, what if we could take Calvin and Hobbes back to the you know the roaring 20s (laughs) how would how would that go over uh if i were there i i would go over really well (laughs) you'd have your little bowler hat on if i time traveled right back to where they are and then i lost my memory and then you brought calvin hobbs i'd be like this is great thanks for introducing me to calvin and hobbs there you go